Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Alright, let's read together Romans 8, 1-3. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And so these verses mark the transition between the law of sin and death, the life under the law of sin and death, and condemnation, which is described in chapter 7, and the new life found in, in Christ. And the strange thing is that due to a form of theology that many Christians consider chapter 7 to actually be describing not the condemned life, but the Christian life. Their theology is such that salvation is primarily a legal change and not a real world difference. And so many read chapter 7, oh, this is just the normal Christian life, and they miss then, I think, the radical change portrayed in chapter 8, which is actually the life that we are to have in Christ now. And John Calvin may be typical of this view. He reads Romans 7 as a description of Christians, the regenerate. Paul, his struggle with sin his incapacity to carry out what he knows is right, his alienation within himself. You know, he ends in 724, wretched man that I am. Many would say this is as good as it gets. And they miss the difference between salvation in chapter 8 and condemnation in chapter 7. And so Calvin is saying, oh, chapter 7, you know, I do what I don't want to do that this is a Christian who is made aware of the sin struggle and all he can hope for is just more struggle until he dies and maybe is rescued. And of course the point is not that we don't struggle or we may not experience chapter 7 occasionally, but I think the point is that we are not left in this struggle in chapter 7. We're not left agonizing over sin. Certainly we have a final rescue, is deliverance, but this is now. There is now no condemnation. The law of the life and the spirit is now. You are set free now. And so this is what I'm going to argue this morning. The subject described in chapter 8, also in chapter 6, is born again. A subject no longer controlled by sin and deception. And so... There are two readings of chapter 7, the two readings of this problem. If you look at chapter 7, 11, you know, Paul depicts sin's deception in regard to the law as key to the human predicament. 
And Calvin, by the way, in his commentary, he passes over sin's deception. According to Calvin, through the light which the law throws on the turpitude of sin, that sin is revealed. That's not exactly what Paul says. He does say, I did not know sin apart from the commandment, thou shalt not covet. But he doesn't say, I understand sin now through the law. You know, Calvin's understanding doesn't explain the confusion of sin and the deception in regard to the law or what this means. And Paul says this very explicitly in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved death to me. And Paul is describing how sin distorts the law in its relation to the sinful self. And so the lie of sin undermines the truth. Christ is the truth because he delivers from a lie. God's truth is given in the oracles of the law, Paul says. Even in Romans 3.3 is subject to the deceit of sin. Paul is saying, this is the way we conceive of ourselves. This is the distortion that is inclusive of the ego, the I, chapter 7. The human project is set upon saving the self, self-salvation, human desire. But we're deceived in the way that we would go about this. The notion that I have even immediate access to who I am through the law, really that cannot stand in light of Paul's picture of the delusion. I don't know who I am. I don't know what sin is. And certainly, I don't know what salvation is apart from Christ. And so the question is, does Christ save from sin and death, or does Christ save from God? Does Christ save us from the law? And by imagining a transparent access to God through the law, and picturing the wretched man of chapter 7 as regenerate man, Calvin, and of course all who read Romans 7 as the normal Christian life, they conflate Paul's depiction of the problem with the solution. Where we imagine the law is part of the solution, we're confusing the problem. We're taking the problem as the answer. And of course, most commentators see chapter 7 in connection to the betrayal of Adam and Calvin is confusing this self-torturing sinful mind. You know, that's the first Adam in Paul's description. That's not Christ. This fits with his notion, though, of penal substitution, which reduces the work of, of the cross to a function within the economy of the law. That's what we're asking. What is the cross of Christ about? Why did Jesus die? Did he meet, die to meet the requirement of the law and meant that requirement? Or did he die to deliver us from the bondage to sin, death, and the deception in regard to the law? And so taking into account what happens in Genesis 3, that original lie, the serpent, you know, you won't die, you'll be like gods, knowing good and evil. They understood that they could gain life then on their own. And that God in some way was perceived to be the obstacle to life. 
And I think Calvin, in passing over the deception, and all that stand with Calvin, and read chapter 7 as the normal Christian life, we reproduce the deception. We imagine there is life in the law by confusing the problem and the solution. So I just want to do a simple exercise. We'll just take, if you have set chapter 7 and 8 open there for you, I'm just going to contrast what's happening, and this is 7-7 seven, seven down to the end to 25, and chapter 8. I want to contrast these two things and suggest that chapter 7 cannot be describing the redeemed. And I would argue that Paul is setting up a contrast then in these two chapters between the Christian and the non-Christian subject. With chapter 7, you know, from verse 7, focused on the experience of Adam. But Adam is every man, every, every person. The fact that Anselm, Augustine, John Calvin, John Piper, you can just go through the popular preachers of our day, are going to be with this group in describing 714 to 25 as part of the normal Christian life. To take the wretched man of verse 24 as typical Christians experience. That's not what Paul's saying. And so we see this then in the difference between the subject of chapter 7 and the subject of chapter 8. Chapter 7, we have the word I repeated about 20 times. Chapter 8, guess what? There is no I. This also happens in Genesis. Prior to the fall, there is no I. The first sentence that Adam says after the fall is, I was naked. I was afraid, I ran, I hid. One sentence, four times, he uses the word I. What I'm saying is, fallen man then gives rise to this isolated, and the word I is just the word ego. It's this alienated self, it's this self put to shame. This is the I that we encounter in chapter 7. And this is the I that is undone in the corporate person. Chapter 8 speaks of a corporate identity in the Holy Spirit. Those in Christ Jesus. You know, he says in 8, uh, 19, the creation waits for the sons of God. Now we're part of this family of God. The second thing is that we go from, chapter 7 is describing a living death. Paul cries out, who will rescue me from this body of death? And he's describing death. I don't do what I want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. The law of my mind is over and against the law of my body. And in chapter 8, we have life in the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit appears in chapter 8 just as many times as the I or the ego appears in chapter 7. Guess what? Death is replaced by life. The Holy Spirit doesn't appear in chapter 7. And chapter 8 talks about, in 8-6, a life characterized by peace. And of course, chapter 7 is all about agonistic struggle, the living death. Chapter 8, verse 2, 
the law of the life of the spirit has displaced the law of sin and death. He's just described the law of sin and death. For the law of the spirit has set you free from this law. What is this law? It's a life of fear. It's a life of slavery. It's a life of agonistic struggle. Deception in regard to the law. Desire aroused by the law. That there's two things at work. Number three. The ego of desire. And actually we could put this together. Paul's depiction of desire. Is displaced by hope. Desire versus hope. The depiction of desire, as with the first couple, the word there in both Genesis and here in chapter 7, it is focused on sight. The word in Greek is blepo, the idea that through the vision, you know, through they saw that it was good, that it was desirous. And this is then connected to the, the fall of man and then they see, I was naked, I'm ashamed, I hid. And so Paul's eye is reduplicating Adam's eye. For in chapter 8, the life and the spirit of hope. Uh, this hope is focused not on the seen, this is verse 24, but on the unseen. We know this is the very definition of hope. We do not hope in what we see, but in what we do not see. It's a reconstitution of the subject. So, I does not appear. We might explain chapter 8 by Galatians 2.20. I, the ego, have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives within me. Number four. There is suffering in both chapter 7 and in chapter 8. But the suffering in chapter 7 under the law is very different than the suffering in chapter 8 in which we are co-heirs with Christ. The work of the law, the law of sin and death, you know, produces this slavery to fear. But chapter 8, verse 15, there is a relationship to God in which Paul cries out, Abba, Father. And so Paul ties this new relationship to God, though, there is suffering, but it's a different experience of suffering. Suffering of sword, the suffering of even up to martyrdom. So he's not denying suffering, but he's saying, yes, but we have hope in Christ. Compare that to chapter 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This suffering is deadly. It arises from within. There is a sharing in the suffering of Christ which marks one out as a co-heir with Christ. Paul says this is our participation in glory. This is his picture in 821. The cosmos, the creation groans in travail. But this travail is a purposeful travail awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. This is a very different thing than suffering under the law. Number five, the body of sin and death is undone. We have resurrection life now. Meaning that we are no longer controlled. Ball pictures it in 6.6. 6, the body of sin. 7.24. The body of death is replaced. Look in 8.10 to 11. By resurrection life in the spirit. 
Now, it, obviously, we don't depart from our material bodies, but there is the sense that because with the resurrection of Christ, we begin to participate in our baptism, in our new life in Christ, in the redemption of the cosmos. And then number six, the, through the work of Christ, people are made righteous. And the word righteous here, they're made right. They're made, you know, right where things were wrong. And seven describes a failed righteousness. There is no work of Christ in Paul's description in chapter seven. There's only the work of the law of sin. But chapter eight describes how the work of Christ Really, it displaces this kind of damnable existence that Paul is describing. That is, the punishing effects of the law of sin and death. These no longer condemn. As God, he says in 8, 1 to 3, has condemned the law of sin through the death of Christ. The law of sin and death has been undone in those found in Christ. Because it's ushering in the life of the Spirit. 7.7 seven describes a kind of living death, a kind of incapacity, unable to do what I want. Chapter 8 describes life in the Spirit, in which we walk as Christ walked. We're enabled to do what we set out to do. In chapter 8, the body or the flesh is dead, but the Spirit gives us life, and God's righteousness, 8.10, is imparted. Number seven, there is a difference between the lie of chapter seven and the truth of Christ, which exposes the lie. Paul is describing sin in terms of a deception. On the order of deception foisted on the first couple, but this is taken hold in all humanity. In the opening of chapter eight, he's countering this lie. Paul explains Christ defeats and exposes the lie of sin in the death he died. The punishing effects of the law of sin and death, the condemnation are finished in 8.1. There is no condemnation. God in 8.3 has condemned the condemnation. He's condemned sin in the flesh so that it is no longer able to deal out death in an active taking up of death through deception. Number eight, life in the flesh is undone and there is new life in the body of Christ. So Paul in 7.23 talks about the law of sin in the members of my body, in the flesh, in verse 25. In 18, 7.18, he says, the sin that dwells within me, that is in my flesh. And of course, he's not talking about the flesh simply as the material body, but this is the place from which sin works death. This is the principle of the flesh. God has dealt with sin in the flesh and provided new life in Christ. And so those in Christ experience the death to sin and the new life. Number nine, this eye, this split eye, is undone. And what is pictured in chapter eight is a unity, a unity, corporate unity between the children of God and with God. The difference is between, really, between life and death. The death, though, divides and life unifies. Death alienates, while life in the spirit is a communion, 
8.3, founded upon the Father. The Trinity is throughout chapter 8. There is no Trinity in chapter 7. There is no Father, there is no Son, there is no Holy Spirit. But in chapter 8, the Father sent the Son who leads by the Spirit. He makes known all the works to those who love him, verse 28, and are called according to his purpose. He calls all those, all those in verse 29 who is foreknown. So he talks about life in the Son, through the Spirit, by the Father. And the final one here, I think we could characterize these two chapters. Chapter 7 is really kind of, you know, what, what happened to Adam and Eve? We might just say that's shame. They're naked and ashamed. And I think we can describe chapter 7 as one who's ashamed. And chapter 8 is one who's come into the glory and love of God. And again, I think Paul in 7.7 7 is providing commentary on Genesis 3. He's giving us a picture, an interior view of that shame, which is marked by an, incapa an incapacity for being present. You know, if you can't, if you're a naked and ashamed and you're hiding, you cannot be present for another. You can't love the other. Shame marks not only the loss of God's presence, it describes the impossibility of interpersonal love. And so to miss this contrast between seven and eight, you seem to be missing the reality of Christianity. Right? If you miss the difference between life and death. If you don't understand that in chapter 7, there is no prayer, there is no hope, there is no spirit, there is no Abba, there is no love, there is no Christ. What do you find in chapter 7? You find the law. You find desire. You find deception. You find an unendurable suffering. You find alienation and death. How is it that many Christians cannot recognize the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8 because they cannot recognize the depth and glory and beauty of the Christian life. And so I think Paul's description of what is, he call, it is the word damnable. I don't know another, you know, the word is katakrima, condemnation. This life of sin if you can't understand the difference between the life of sin and salvation, then I'm afraid it may be because one is left stranded in a kind of punishing life in which there really is no deliverance. But Paul in chapter 8 is describing a love that is indestructible, indivisible, Neither height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor anything can come between us and the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God found in Christ. That is the good news in contrast to the bad news of chapter 7. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.